Welcome back to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast. It's the show where we explore the world of neurodiversity or the natural variation of human brains, neurodiversity affirming practices with the understanding of wonderful lived and learned experiences. So I'm your host, the Neuroaffirming Parent, and in today's episode, we have a very special guest. Her name is Michelle, and she's a wife. She's a mother to four children and a fellow podcaster. You might already know who she is. She is the Navigating the Spectrum on Instagram, and she started her podcast back in 2020. So yay for three years, and she's known for working with parents that are raising neurodivergent children. You might not know that she actually has a master's degree in special education and is currently completing a master IEP certification. I'm excited to have her as a guest because she has a lot of lived and learned experiences as a mom because three of her children have ADHD, two of her children are autistic, and one child is also dyslexic. But recently, her and her husband both have received individual ADHD diagnoses later in their adult lives. So please join me in welcoming Michelle to the podcast. Welcome! Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you. Yay. I'm so glad. Like you told me you have a child moving to college. How'd that go? It was so sad. It was really sad. You know, my, our oldest is 21 and she graduated from college this spring and our son graduated from high school this last spring. So I knew it was coming and we'd done it before, but it doesn't seem to get any easier. Right. You think they like have like a whole like pod shipping container at this point to make it easier. I know. And some kind of emotional support. My dog, you'd think he'd be my emotional support dog, but um, he's just kind of a big fluff ball that needs my attention. (laughs) So tell me how you feel, because I know online there's like so much like people coming out with late ADHD diagnosis. My sister's one Mm -hmm. where she just got it a few years ago, even though we've known all her life. But mm-hmm. how do you feel about that coming from a parent, advocate, and knowing what you know? Mm, that's a really good question. I think that for me, I'm pretty sure that I was led into this world naturally because I connected with this world of neurodivergence mm. just naturally. Um, it just took me a while to realize why I connected so naturally. Yes. I, I, you know, I, I, I posted something on my social media and I was talking about, hey, if you are a parent of multiple neurodivergent children and there is absolutely a genetic factor in neurodivergence, um, maybe take a look at yourself. And as I'm posting it, I honestly had like just bells going off in my head. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Yes. I've always thought I am married to a neurodivergent man and therefore that must be where it comes from. And while that is, while there's truth in that, I kept thinking, but every one of my kids, how, like, what are the odds? And yeah, and I'm terrible at math. So I understand that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not so good at it either. So I, I went and I went and did my own testing and I could have just looked at all of the, all of the symptoms or, you know, all of the things that you see are associated with ADHD and said, oh yeah, I connect with so much of that. And I could have gone that route and helped myself 
but I felt like working with parents and, and also mostly being the parent of the very children that I raise, I really wanted to know, particularly because my autistic children are, the my two autistic children are very black and white and they're kind of like, well, show me. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to kind of say, you know, it's, I'm not guessing I, I am. And here's how we know. So, you know, I just did, um, I can't remember the name of the, of the questionnaire that I filled out, but I worked with our psychiatric nurse practitioner and she's amazing. And at the end of it, we were both kind of chuckling because yeah, of course, because of course, of course. <laughs> and you're like, where's my accommodations? Where's my support? Yes. Well, I realized, I realized, and for me, I didn't start really recognizing some of the struggle, the struggles or experiencing some of the struggles that I have until adulthood mm. and until I became a parent. And so as a child, I did understand that I had some limitations. I thought I was really good at math, yeah. but when it became like three-dimensional it my brain could not process what I was looking at mm. and I kept thinking what's the barrier what did I miss and to this day I still don't know exactly what it is other than to say that I do have a child with dyslexia and there's a genetic link with dyslexia and there's dyscalculia and yeah yes, totally. that's right and I've kind of wondered if I if I unknowingly may have dyscalculia I don't need to diagnose myself in that because I'm not doing math. Right. And yeah, you don't get <laughs> like so, an extra delay on taxes just because of it. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so it's worked out for me. Okay. I didn't, I didn't require supports in that area as an adult. I just had to work really, really hard in math to get good enough grades to go to where I wanted to go for college. And it was hard, but a lot of people do hard. So it didn't occur to me then. Yeah. And honestly, I want to know, I'm so curious because I know probably the reason I went undiagnosed as dyslexic for so long was just because I got phonics and I got lucky. But do mm. you remember from your childhood, like, how was your, like, did you have like a more of an inclusive upbringing or was there anything that kind of probably indicated why you wouldn't get diagnosed sooner? You know, we did hooked on phonics too. Mm. And, and that's what, I mean, we grew up with hooked on phonics. And so I think that it's highly likely that the resources that the schools were using, the schools that I went to were using just accommodated my learning style naturally. I, I was an early reader. Mm. I read at an early age. And were you ever identified realize, as gifted? Um, yes, I was. Well, you know, that's a neurotype uh, too. So you get to add that. Yes, <laughs> I know. There it is. There it is. I was in elementary school and most likely middle school. They In middle school, you kind of lost that designation yeah. at where I went. And I mean, you could take your honors courses and in high school, you could take your honors classes too. And, and I did those things and school mattered to me. Um, but I... Like I said, just going back to math, I often felt very frustrated because I thought there's something that I've missed. Yes, like, I felt that too. If, yep. Yes, I thought if learning is progressive, then I've missed some building block along the way. Yeah, and, and you want to know what it's called? 
math concepts and number sense. So I know <laughs> Thank you. I needed you. I needed you and I need you now. So I'm so grateful to know this. So it's just, it's just kind of interesting. And, you know, I have family that have asked me, it's so interesting that you have ADHD. I never would have pegged you for having ADHD. I think oftentimes what we think we know about ADHD is that we think we're seeing kids running around in circles, doing handstands on the walls and they can't sit down. And, but it, it's not, always you don't like think that. internally, like when your mind's racing or when That's you're right. That's right. You don't think internally. And even as we're having this conversation, I, you'll say a word that sparks a song lyric for me and it's going off in the back of my mind. <laughs> oh, I love and, that. And you know what? I love it too, because it's fun. Yes. And, but it is distracting, but it's inside of my brain. And I learned, I mean, we were just taught you sit still, you listen, you, and I could, but I was a dancer and I was a competitive dancer. I danced hours and hours and hours after school every day. And it's discipline and it's rewarded when it's something yes. that you can see as, oh, people like that. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. And I felt very confident in it and in my abilities and skills. And so I did so much of it. And I think that was where I was able to get out a lot of my excessive the the excess of energy that I had because even if it's internal I think to regulate yourself it still requires some effort in some way and I yes. and I laugh because you know when I was growing up we had phones that were hooked into the wall right it was like mm -hmm. you had two phones in your house and one was upstairs or downstairs or some sometimes you had one and it was high enough that I couldn't reach it so I would call the I would climb the door frame to ah. pick up the phone and I, and I was always very active and very busy. And we had a basketball hoop that was in our driveway and I would climb the post and sit in the hoop so and cool. nobody could get me out, you know, because I thought it was so funny. Yeah. And my name's Michelle and they called me Michelle the monkey because I climbed <laughs> everything. And I just have a lot of stories of me. You should have went into rock climbing. Right. <laughs> I know. I know. But there are so many experiences like that where I didn't really have the impulse control. And there was no even um, connection with fear. I didn't even yeah. know that I should be fearful. And I did gymnastics and doing you know, round off back handsprings or tucks or layouts or any of those moves, I, I did them because I didn't feel fear in doing those things. There was a, and I, I connect that for me. But that accomplishment that. too, when you can do it yeah. and when you do it again and you're like, oh mm -hmm. my goodness, muscle memory is real. Yeah. Like, cause I did real. gymnastics as a kid too. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I will say like, I did not have the fearlessness. Like I wish <laughs> I did <laughs> because I remember that. Like I, I, you know, I could, it's like a tightrope because mm. there is a chance where you can tap into that fear or you can tap yeah. out. Yeah. And I absolutely understand what you're saying. Cause my mom, there's a lot of things like she moved from New York to North Carolina, mm -hmm. no fear. And she's oh. the only one from her family 
at that time to move. Now my cousins, like I have a cousin in South Carolina, like I have other cousins moving, but nobody mm-hmm. in our immediate family moved like that. Mm-hmm. Cause it was yeah. like, hush, hush, no, no, uh-uh. Like very scary. You stay near <laughs> each other. Yes. Well, I have, I definitely developed fears as an adult that I didn't have as a kid like open bodies of water now. Oh yeah. Give me pause now. I don't like, I don't want jellyfish or algae or none of it. <laughs> That's right. I'm like, did you say there's sharks in the ocean? No, thank you. And, and like a fear of heights and things like that. If I'm up too high, I can manage it partly because I've learned how to manage anxiety. Just well, I have a question though. The that I did, have. The, yes. did that change after having kids? Yes. For me too. Yeah. Like, and it's not regular anxiety. It's like, I wouldn't even say it's irrational. It's very rational. It's just, you have to learn how to stop yourself. And you're like, wait, Mm -hmm. I can live through this. (laughs) Yes, you do. I did feel myself getting stuck in my mind in kind of anxiety loops where Mm. I would feel anxiety for things that the anxiety that I was experiencing wasn't useful because yes oh I love that can we repeat mm -hmm. that and the anxiety (laughs) wasn't useful because anxiety is useful and sometimes it can it can be useful sometimes and in these cases it wasn't because it was affecting my sleep and Mm. and really I was feeling anxiety over things I couldn't control yes and so to me that's when it's not useful and so I I knew that 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 I had to work on that. But the beautiful thing about raising the children that I have is that we worked a lot, particularly with our oldest on anxiety. She has clinical anxiety and she's autistic. And I had to learn a lot of skills associated with how to manage anxiety. Mm -hmm. And just naturally, I began to incorporate them into my life. It wasn't even really a thought out mission that I had for myself. Yeah. It just happened as a parent through teaching my child. So un, unknown blessings and gifts that came from just raising the, the children that I have. No, I totally feel that way because when like my husband was working full time and I decided to stay home for my two kids mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of people hate screen time and TV, but I was a kid. I grew up on PBS kids. So I knew that was going to be big in our house. Like we love Mr. Rogers, love Sesame street. Mm -hmm. So that was about the same time that Daniel tiger was like huge. And the social emotional learning that I know now it was Mm -hmm. on the show and Mr. Rogers did that too. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I don't want people to feel like, oh, it's a quick fix or, oh, it like solves all the anxiety. No, right. it's about living with those uncomfortable feelings mm-hmm. and having that not even tough, but just important conversation with yourself to mm-hmm. take a step back. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is my reaction in relative terms, helping the situation or hurting the situation? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's true. And there is some thing about it it almost when you experience it regularly and you start learning how to use tools meaningful Mm. useful tools there is a certain amount of tolerance that you build up to what you're experiencing the tolerance comes in the form of exactly what you were saying having the ability to step back and observe the emotion that you're feeling 
and deciding what am I going to do about this emotion? Is there anything to do? Is this an emotion that I need to let go of because mm. I can't fix this? Is yeah, because your something... ego, oh, that can be attached. That's right. And and I know that some people experience it to a higher degree and need a little extra help from, say, a professional therapist. And um, I think that that is a great and healthy route to go if that's yes. what's needed. We've done it in our house, in, in our home, and it's been wonderful. However, saying that not all therapists are created equal. So maybe if you don't have a great experience round one, just understand that there are other people out there. Well, you know, what's funny that I noticed during the pandemic, which number one podcasts, so that helps, but Uh also there's a lot of therapists that will just give not even consultations, but sometimes just like almost like a mini Ted talk on YouTube. I know. And sometimes just hearing that outside voice where Mm -hmm. it's not connected to your situation, but it gives you like a, a new perspective Mm -hmm. that helped me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that. I, I think it's really good to share the tools that we use and yeah because not everybody has time to do a course I admit (laughs) (laughs) it's true it's so true so yeah I think that the diagnosis that I've received um has allowed me to kind of look back on my childhood and say oh I kind of see that in places that I didn't see it before and but it wasn't as prominent and it really did not I don't feel like having ADHD affected me in very many negative ways as a child I think as an adult I started seeing things that were harder for me and I had moments of pause where I I just experienced things at that how do I even say this things felt heavier and they are because you're an adult. And so that actually makes sense. You're raising, I was raising. Well, I have a question for you. Do you ever feel like we're at a point where sometimes too much information is unhelpful? Sometimes. Yes, I do. I think if we are constantly in a state of, I do this because of that, I do this because of if, and sometimes it's okay to just say, this is a part of who I am. I think where it comes in handy is when we find ourselves stuck in various situations. And then we say, oh, this is actually not working for me. Is there something that I can do that would be helpful and meaningful in this situation for me? And that's honestly, yeah, I love your page for that reason. And like, I have to like comment, like, listen, y'all, we did not coordinate our posts, but we both today posted (laughs) about inclusion And I I just feel like that need because I felt growing up very excluded from my family because I didn't take medication. I didn't really struggle. I got, I wouldn't even say a perfect education, but there was a lot of things in my education that supported me. And Mm -hmm. I felt guilt and shame Mm -hmm. that my other family members didn't get that same opportunity. Mm -hmm. And even today, like, you know, I'm so proud of people that get diagnosed or even self-diagnose, but I feel like you should have access to accommodations and modifications, no matter what Mm -hmm. you shouldn't need a a piece of paper to get you the help that you need when you have a voice that can say, Hey, I need help. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's, it's what I think about 
like a 504, let's say, if we're just yeah. talking about a 504. And, you know, it's not the legal document that an IEP is, but it is set up for accommodations. I think that the purpose, to me, I've often wondered, why do we have that? Why do we have a 504? And because I, of a lawsuit. I'm, the only reason right? we get changed. Right? I know. Well, I see that with the IEP, but with a 504, I think, okay, here's here's how I look at that. I say, it's almost like a reminder sheet. And as mm. a parent, it makes sense to me because I have a task list. Oh yeah, this kid needs to be at these different appointments. To me, a 504 is similar to that. Yeah. Just, I look at it and say, okay, this is a reminder to the teacher and to other adults that are working with your child. They have these accommodations, they're written down, which actually does require the teacher and the staff to follow through on those accommodations. Um, and they can be held accountable in, uh, for providing those accommodations, which we could go into the accountability. Uh, we could go down a rabbit hole with that. But that's the point of it, <laughs> is that they're held accountable. That's the hope, the great hope of the 504. But I do hear what you're saying. You almost wish that so many of those accommodations were just naturally a part of the classroom. Well, my and thing it, too is like, shouldn't in society in 2023 know that you know, just because your brain operates a certain way, it doesn't stop outside of the classroom either. I -hmm. feel like our society should integrate and understand the need Mm -hmm. for accommodations and modifications 24 Mm -hmm. seven, because, you know, even when you, there's so much of a gap now that I'm sure you see as a mom of when you leave Mm -hmm. school and then you have to fight for accommodations all over again in college. Mm -hmm. And then once you leave Mm -hmm. college, you got to fight in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people with, you know, rejection sensitivity or demand avoidance and it's not always Mm -hmm. accommodating for them Mm -hmm. to have to say hey I need help you know what I mean Mm -hmm. well I do and I will just say that my youngest who's dyslexic we she also takes piano and her piano teacher is so accommodating and you know I was messaging her the other day and I said here's the way I'm approaching piano because for her little dyslexic brain and she's very very bright uh, but processing what she sees and and then interpreting it into what she does I am so interested in this because I am not instrument inclined I learned like I was in chorus and choir but -hmm. for my kids I bought this little Amazon kit for their keyboard that like color Mm -hmm. codes it and now I'm also learning piano (laughs) I love that you do the color coding. So I will just freely admit that I am still in the learning stages of how to support my daughter with her dyslexia because I am very familiar with autism and ADHD and dyslexia is new within the last six months or so. And so I'm still learning how to accommodate her. I'm I'm trying to speed up that process for the benefit of her. But what I have learned, she also has ADHD. And so what we do for piano, and I was messaging with her teacher about this, we take it in chunks. So we do Mm. a bar at a time and that's how she practices, but we cover up the other bars so that her eyes can focus on exactly where she's at. Yes. Chunking. We love chunking. Yes, I did want to let you know, and for Mm -hmm. all our listeners, if you are interested 
in any kind of dyslexia training, mm -hmm. Nessie uh, Learning, they have a dyslexia a training course. I got it free last October for Dyslexia Awareness Month. But if you're listening to this outside of October, it, it's usually cost effective. It's not that bad. But if you want mm -hmm. free dyslexia training, um, the my state of Georgia offers a wonderful webinar on YouTube on the International Dyslexia Association of Georgia page. Um, but also they have a course through Cox Campus, which is there wonderful and it's called Unraveling Dyslexia. But then also Microsoft has partnered with Made by Dyslexia, which is a UK based organization. And it's Microsoft Learn, but it's all about dyslexia. And then also how to incorporate, if you have a Microsoft computer, some of their unique features because Bill Gates is dyslexic. So even I didn't realize until I was older that a lot of things growing up, like spell check from Word doc and, you know, Excel mm -hmm. spreadsheets, these are built-in accommodations, but now they've expanded even more. They just released the other day on their um, social media that they have more accommodations for text-to-speech, speech-to-text, and then for literacy, like they have a literacy mm -hmm. coach where if you have a microphone, the kid can read and it will kind of visually track. And I've even I seen in that. their new, yeah, in the PowerPoint, they have like a coach feature on PowerPoint. So if mm -hmm. you're getting ready to have a presentation, it will have an AI coach kind of listen to you and see like, do you say, um, a lot or do you say this and help you <laughs> practice? And I was like, I needed that in college. <laughs> right. I love that these resources that are out there and you better believe I'll be rewinding this part and listening to it again and writing down. I was trying to take notes while you were saying, Oh, I'll send it to you. I love resources. sending resources. <laughs> yes. And I love receiving them because I actually use them. They're very meaningful to me. So I love that you shared those. And so I just, I think it's beautiful that her, my daughter's piano teacher, just her response was whatever accommodations she needs that's what we'll do. And, and can so, we talk about that? Because that yes. is a unique situation because I no. feel like with my personal training background mm -hmm. and my husband, he did sports all his childhood. And even mm -hmm. in music, there's mm -hmm. always understanding that a student will need accommodations and modifications or visual aids or audio aids or hand mm -hmm. signals. Like I, um, I found out we went to this like local sports museum and the only reason basketball and like certain sports have hand signals was from like that multi-sensory kind of world. And I'm like, how mm -hmm. can it be in such, obviously like the private sector, but we've never translated that to education. I don't think that the general everyday person even sees those as accommodations. They're used to seeing mm. it. They don't understand why it exists. And I look at, well, actually what this reminds me of is I have a sister-in-law who was in a four-wheeling accident in high school and became paralyzed from the waist down. Mm. And I had her on my podcast and I can't remember off the top of my head what episode, but she said that when we accommodate for a few, we unintentionally accommodate for many. Yes. And I think that those accommodations are created and sometimes people are saying, oh, why do we have to do this for this um, minority population? And I think it's it's almost silly that that the, that would be the thought, because 
you accommodate for that who you believe to be this yes. small population but it is so useful for many and i look at you know i i went to a presentation and sometimes the presentation format is just discussion and mm. and so people don't bring like a powerpoint presentation um, as an example but those people that present both verbally and with the use of the powerpoint presentation their message is received in such a stronger fashion for me because that's how the I, human brain likes it <laughs> that's right i saw it i heard it and i was able to look back on it too i could kind of review it as long as it was still you know if that slide was still up there i could take notes from it so there were all of these different ways that my brain was absorbing the information and it it was so, so useful for me. And I didn't even, I don't even think of myself as one that needs that type of accommodation. But from that experience, I learned I do. I mm. do so much better. And I don't always hear, I don't know what the deal is, but I mistake words for other words when people are speaking. Yeah. I, I sometimes hear a different word. My family used to write them down like momisms because I would take a guess at what I thought they'd said and it was completely different than what they'd actually said. So it's like a funny joke at my house and they, mom thought you said, take your sweater off for sleeping, but she, but I really said, I, I don't know what it was, but like they, it, I had no idea for whatever reason. So I love when it's in writing and I can see it. Well, see, I have, it, I have a childhood experience of that and that's why we, love captions in our house for that we reason them. we do too we love them but I never it's not because I have tripped on words like I do trip mm -hmm. on words but mm -hmm. I have this core memory of a child of being embarrassed in my family and it kind of became a family joke but it wasn't a joke for me but oh, I remember I was like a young kid and I was still learning the difference between like giraffe and zebra and they would mm -hmm. ask me like they would show me like a picture book and be like what is this and i in my head was saying giraffe but it came out as zebra got you and i remember mm -hmm. that and it was just like i guess a self-aware moment and then seeing them laugh and me being confused is like why did my brain have that word come out mm -hmm. um there was like yeah. a few other words that like would transpose themselves in my brain and yes. it was so annoying and frustrating because mm -hmm. you know you want to communicate but other people find and they're trying to be supportive you know trying to make it light with laughter but mm -hmm. they don't understand how frustrating that miscommunication is mm -hmm. you know i will say some of the natural accommodations that i built for myself even before i knew that i had adhd i would be in a room where there was a lot of background noise and it was difficult for me to focus on a a conversation with one or two people mm. because I could just hear all of this background noise. And so I would often miss hear kind of what I was saying earlier. And the accommodation was I would just simply say, I have a really hard time hearing with when there's a lot of background noise. So oh. I'm gonna step in. Yeah. So and I that's self-advocacy. Yeah. Yes. So I, I would say something like I'm gonna step in a little closer. And then for me, I usually like add a little humor to it, you know, and I'd say something like something stupid. It was always stupid, <laughs> but <laughs> like, I'm sorry that you have to see 
you have to see so close to my teeth or, you know, just, I, oh, it made me self-conscious because I'm like, do I have anything in my teeth? Am I chewing gum? Did I swish? But because I would move in so close because I couldn't hear. Yeah. And, and can we talk about small talk? Because it bothers me that people misunderstand it for neurodivergent people because mm-hmm. I've seen both sides of the spectrum with my mom too. and sister, because my mm-hmm. sister, it was almost like social anxiety. She was afraid to say the wrong thing mm-hmm. and get excluded immediately because she wanted to fit in so bad. Mm-hmm. Where my mom, like you were saying, she had that fearlessness. She didn't care. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was like the middle of the road because I was like, well, I've seen my mom embarrass herself and it wasn't as bad. <laughs> and I've seen my sister kind of lose a possible good friend or an interaction because of that fear so Mm -hmm. for me if I go to the supermarket and like I don't know these people yeah I'm gonna make small talk nobody cares Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. a lot of people like that and it kind of brings their guard down when you are friendly but Mm -hmm. I kind of hate that distinction they're like oh well you must not have issues if you can you know, small talk in spaces, but I'm like, no, you don't understand Mm -hmm. the accommodations going in my head to prepare myself to speak. Yes. I'm afraid that I'm going to get made fun of. Yes. I'm Mm -hmm. afraid that these people are going to like turn out to hate me. (laughs) You take that leap of faith. So it's interesting that you bring that up because small talk has, that has never been something that has scared me or that has made me struggle. I did post, I did, I made a post about this conversation that I had with my son who also has ADHD. He's Mm. autistic and has ADHD, but I just have ADHD. And so my, my comment was, I can talk about the shape of a cloud. Like, what do you, Oh, look, that looks like a giraffe, you know? And he, he wants none of that. He wants none of that. That is so painful for him. Well, can I say something? I swear with parenting, you are Mm -hmm. supposed to give birth to people with the opposite (laughs) traits to help you grow. Because yes, I get that. Like my daughter, Mm -hmm. like we do connect on certain things, but some things Mm -hmm. she's like my polar opposite. And then my son, sometimes like we get along too similar and like we butt heads. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, I so get that. But I will tell you that- it's interesting that you talk about this because I go back to what I had to do was as opposed to an accommodation, I had to learn to pause to self-reflect because I had no issue being the entertainer in any given group. I, I was positively reinforced regularly because I was a little out of the box and would make comments that were funny. And I knew they were funny because people were laughing or at least they pretended they were funny. So they laughed, but, but I had to learn that with my husband's family because I was unknowingly oversharing because my mom and Mm -hmm. sister overshare it's normal Mm -hmm. in our house to overshare. It's almost like our love language to say that quiet part out loud. Mm It's a connection. It's a form of deeper connection for me, the overshare. And sometimes you look and say, I I just made this person feel uncomfortable because I shared something that was a little outside of the typical comfort zone. And so that is okay. But I had to learn to pause and reflect on that. And I absolutely love people. I Mm. love people. I always have. I love connecting with people. I love hearing about people's experiences and 
how they why you're a good podcaster (laughs) well that's very nice but I just love hearing how they think differently than I do or even the same either way I'm I'm in it but what I my very first experience I'll remember it forever and ever because it was so embarrassing to me was I was in college and I went next door to someone else's apartment and they had family visiting and it started out and I was my usual chatty asking them questions cracking jokes they were laughing the conversation went about 20 minutes and I said okay I'm gonna go now oh I I said something like I I better let you go and I started closing the door and the girl that lived there had no idea that I could still hear her and she Mm. said finally I thought she was never going to leave yes I witnessed that happen with my sister and mm. for my sister I felt so bad because she just didn't know the social cue of oh you've Mm -hmm. extended your time Yes. And I had always assumed that because of the back and forth of the conversation or the laughter or the engagement that they were in it. But I had to take a step back and say, what did I miss in that conversation? And I realized that for them, what I missed, and it was so simple, but in that specific situation, they were with family and they really mm. just wanted to be with their family. So I kind of misread the environment. But, but I'd those argue are, those are, that that was probably a learning point for them because if you didn't yeah. have that experience, they never mm. would have seen a personality like you. And that's what's <laughs> great about college because mm-hmm. me and my husband are the opposite people. We are anxious mm-hmm. and we're like, we've been here too long. We need to find an exit strategy because they're about to kick <laughs> us out. And his family uh-huh. will come back and think that we're rude because we, it looks like we rushed out the door and left. And I'm like, where oh, is that you. line? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that being who we are requires a lot of self-compassion mm-hmm. and also can be benefit. We can benefit from our own self-reflection. I think everyone can. But I think that I've had to really learn how to self-reflect. And I know there have been, I've, I just am the queen of creating awkward situations, which I find extremely funny. Mm. I actually don't feel discomfort. You should just consider yourself a comedian. Just lead with that. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think it's really, really funny, but I never want to make someone else feel uncomfortable. So that's not that part of it isn't funny, but just an awkward, just, well, that was an awkward statement. I think that kind of stuff is really funny, which is probably why I'm drawn to other neurodivergent brains because there is a lot of outside the box thinking and comments and shares. And I'm drawn to that. I think it's very engaging and intriguing and um, it just really piques my interest. And what I remind myself is we're not all like that. And Mm. that is completely fine. That's totally fine. I just had, honestly, for me, I had to learn how to tone it down. My mom still has not learned that. So you need to make a course for that. (laughs) (laughs) I, I just, you, you can, what I've learned is to read people's body language. And Mm. when you hear someone speaking in a particular tone of voice to understand that they are showing you how they show up in the world. I'd argue that's empathy because I mean, a lot of people forget the environment 
is mm-hmm. huge. It's huge. And when if somebody's masking, how are you supposed to know? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That makes it hard. That's right. It does make it hard. And I learned like from my own children that I don't need to fill silent spaces. Mm. It's okay to exist in silence. But most of the time our brains are not silent. So we feel alone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's right. I I will take my son, who's not a talker and just really uncomfortable with small talk. We'll take a 30 minute drive because he boxes. I'll drive him to boxing and we will say five words to each other on the drive, but it's not uncomfortable because I recognize that that that's how he feels regulated and comfortable Mm. in the environment. If he has something to say, he'll say it. Do you ever let him like control like the music playlist? Cause I had a lot of friends growing up where that's how they connected with their parents. And that was like an unspoken communication. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, oftentimes that happens. Like after he's had a really good workout, I feel like that's when he feels extremely regulated. Mm. So when he's done with boxing and we're driving home, that's usually when we're sharing our music playlists or it, typically it's him sharing his because I always share mine. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just interesting. It's creating that kind space. Of, mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there's a rhythm. And sometimes it takes time to see that in people, but I've really worked hard to teach myself to recognize that what other people are projecting is part of who they are. They're telling you who they are, even if they Mm. don't realize that they are. So sometimes I will talk, like I speak to you and I feel like I could match your energy. Yeah. And, and it, it feels natural and easy to me because I have that energy but sometimes my energy is a little much for people and I totally get that and I'm not offended by that it hurts my feelings zero yeah I've been told like you're too cheery or you're too bright and Mm -hmm. like for me as a person who has depression I'm like Mm -hmm. you know what if you saw the real me you Mm -hmm. probably would say oh well you're depressing like Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah if you you knew my That's right. Like the internal struggle. And that's the thing is I think you come to a place where you stop asking people, what do you want? You just show up the way that you are Yes. and you're authentic in that. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think it's something that we, this is what you get today. (laughs) Yes. This is what we work towards is to be ourselves and feel comfortable being ourselves. And I would just say that I do think that what I'm describing is empathy, that coming into somebody's space and recognizing their body language and their verbal cues. I think that is empathy. I didn't know that it was that for many years, but you're kind of able to put yourself in other people's shoes. I don't consider that masking myself. Mm. I consider that connection. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, for me. Well, it I would feels like connection. have you ever heard like the phrase of like because I remember in school, especially with like gifted programs and stuff, there was a lot of clicks. But for mm-hmm. me, I was that person that I it felt inauthentic, disingenuous to just associate mm-hmm. with one group. Yeah. And even though you know I was designated high intelligence, I wasn't mm-hmm. gonna belittle somebody just because they were my friend and we weren't both in gifted. Mm-hmm. And I don't, con- I, I agree with you. Like, I don't consider that masking and I'm not dumbing myself down. Right. I'm just connecting with them on their mm-hmm. level. And I don't yes. think that's wrong. 
I don't either. I, I actually love it because it has allowed me to insight into other people's lives. And it also mm. helps bring a sense of comfort and to the person that you're communicating with. Yes. And it's, I don't do that because it's not mirroring. You know what I mean? No. It's like, I want you to be comfortable. So I want to be at your comfort level. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is I don't actually think about it now. I used to say, okay, what is my environment? Let's look at the mm-hmm. environment. What am I walking into? But these days I just recognize people for who they are. And I am very comfortable with different types of people. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I love about neurodiversity is because mm-hmm. once you let go of that concept of, oh, I'm broken or, oh, I can be fixed. Mm-hmm. And you just let go of that. And you think, oh, everybody is supposed to be different mm-hmm. and everybody yes. can be included, even though they are different. I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, and one thing that I work, uh, when I work with parents, I talk a lot about strength-based parenting And essentially you're looking at your child and you're saying, I know we have all these struggles, Mm. but there's also a lot of strengths that exist and let's lean into those strengths. And I want you to see that I'm leaning into those strengths and I recognize those things that. Yeah. I've even heard it called more recently, kind of like ability based. Oh, I like that. I actually, I I really like that. I've, I've heard it called that too. In the program that I studied, they call it strengths based. So I naturally fall back to that but I like ability based well correct me because like I feel like gifted parenting books are all that mm -hmm. where they don't focus on what your kid can't do they focus Mm -hmm. on what is your kid currently doing what do they Mm -hmm. want to do and how Mm -hmm. can we reach that goal Mm -hmm. it's almost it's fairly closely aligned with looking at your child's interests Mm. and and leaning into those interests and building on those interests And I look at like my son who was for a time very much into anime and I was never into anime. I didn't really understand it, but I knew that he loved it. And so what my husband and I did was we watched a couple of shows so that we could talk about characters and try to connect with our son. But there was a, one of the characters in one of the shows played the drums and so I remember saying to my son I would love for you to play an instrument I noticed in this show this guy plays the drums is that something you'd be interested in well he was it was a connection through something that he loved and so now he's my our son is this really talented drummer nobody would know it because he only plays alone but it's because you saw your son in that character and you asked I asked and he was interested. It took him being interested. If he wasn't interested, he would have told me, no, I just somehow hit the Yeah, it's not like you forced him. You're like, hey, he's like the show, we're doing drugs. That's right. He was really (laughs) interested. And he also took Japanese online. We signed him up for a Japanese course and he liked it. Um, He didn't take another one. He did find it interesting because a lot of anime is Japanese related, you know? And so uh, he loved the culture. Uh, that he was watching and so I kind of wanted to lean into that for him and I think that that's not that different than strength-based focus and I think when we look when we are meeting someone and we understand 
some of those, some of their abilities, we can lean into those abilities. Yes. And I think that goes with what you're saying about family history too, because, you know, not everybody might not consider themselves neurodivergent or, you know, they might not like a label, Mm -hmm. but some people's family members had a collection of something or was a really big sports fan or had a really big, you know, interest Mm -hmm. in music and what you're saying. Yeah. You can connect on a certain level Mm-hmm. and like for my daughter I know what you're saying because we love Sailor Moon and I love Sailor Moon as a kid Sailor <laughs> Moon, yes so we love my son he loves Totoro and uh-huh. like mm-hmm. my husband he never was that kind but like we watched it together yeah. as a family he's like oh yeah I get it like it's cozy <laughs> it is and you know not to not to like get off track on anime but they all the characters also state exactly what they're doing and what they're feeling Yeah, it's something about the Japanese culture because Mm -hmm. there's some new animes out where it made me cry because even though it was a kid's movie, Mm -hmm. it was talking about new motherhood and the difficulty Uh of managing all that. And the husband kind Mm -hmm. of realized later on, oh, like she needs help and not just Mm -hmm. like with the housework, like Mm -hmm. she needs help. And I'm like, how can they communicate that through animation? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, and they do. And I think for particularly for my autistic children who the social interactions weren't always easy for them mm. I think it was really great for them to have something it's like a social story yeah it's a social story and it's right there and you don't have to guess how anyone's feeling because they tell you yes and so I my, my husband and I were like what do we think anyway we came to that conclusion and we were still careful with what shows we allowed our son to watch because he was watching him when he was younger. And he's still, treat, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> and honestly, our oldest daughter, she's 21, and she still watches some of those shows still. It's just fun for her. She just likes it. Well, they're so comfort shows like a, at a certain yes. point. Yes. Because my dad, like he, there's like an old 80s anime called Robot Carnival. And Mm -hmm. I never remembered the full movie. I only remembered one little part because it had like a starry sky and it was like related to the fair, which I loved as a kid. (laughs) And I just called it Twinkle Twinkle. And apparently that's a dyslexic trait. Um, Mm -hmm. But I watched it as an adult and I'm like, number one, how did I remember this scene? But also Mm -hmm. like, it's, it's a little different when you watch like childhood movies as an adult. But yeah. it was such like a, a family connection movie because I can bring it up to my sister today and she's like, yep, know what you're talking about. Yes, <laughs> it's like mom's mom's mashed potatoes that everyone loved. Yes. There's a connection to that. Or I the lasagna that. that she burnt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. So, okay. So I have a question because I know I have a lot of listeners and followers that Mm -hmm. are looking for IEP, not just help, but like people that they can talk to for help. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I am honestly not that person at this time, probably never again, because I have a lot of public school trauma trying to advocate for my daughter and failed. But Mm -hmm. I am so interested to know from you because you have four kids and that's a huge like chunk of time to be intimately involved with education Mm -hmm. but how do you feel about IEPs and 504s and then kind of segue into what kind of made you want to be a master IEP consultant these are really good questions 
I think that what, how I feel, that is a complicated question to answer because I feel like there's opportunity there. I feel mm -hmm. like, I feel like there's opportunity for the schools to truly support a child in their ability to learn and their unique ability to learn that may be a little bit different than how the mainstream classroom is being run. I think that there is opportunity. Do I think that all schools take that opportunity? I don't. I have seen it not tapped into. I have seen um, teachers that aren't properly trained by districts. And I feel for the teachers because there mm. is a level of overwhelm because they haven't been trained in those areas. Yes. Teachers aren't, aren't well-versed in IEPs until they have been trained. And even then, I think there's a lot that gets tricky. I, what I, what I've seen with my own kids is, you know, I made the mistake because my oldest is twice exceptional. She is exceptionally bright. Her processing speed is just out of sight. Mm. She, she just processes so quickly. So what that looks like at school is academically, she's crushing it. So the school is saying there, there are You're no, so smart. You don't need any accommodations. That's right. You don't need any accommodations. But what I'm seeing is a social emotional unraveling yes. of my child. Yes. And, and I did not even know back in elementary school, if for her, it started right around fourth or fifth grade. I think it has to do with the way that children develop. And there is kind of an, a next level mm -hmm. around that stage where instead of like playing with things, uh, they start talking. Hormones. And, and <laughs> there's hormones. Yes, there's hormones. And there is a level of communication that for my daughter felt like it was another language. Yes, And it had to do with social cues and social niceties. And she didn't think that way. Her brain did not work that way. And what I didn't know was that schools can provide social skills training and that they can also help your child with their emotional needs. Mm. And I didn't know, I didn't know any of that. And so when I finally went to the school. She wasn't officially diagnosed until she was 14. Oh, I wow. took, I took that to them. And what I naively thought at the time was if I present them with this diagnosis, then they will know what she needs. Yeah. And you're not alone has, to parents today. I, think that that's right. I thought, well, then they're definitely going to step up and help me because they're going to see that even though she's not struggling academically, that with her particular autism diagnosis she also has social emotional challenges and yes. well what would be considered challenges for living in this neurotypical world that is generally neurotypical you know well I have a so, question do you know yes. the original purpose of the IEP um I just know that it was I mean I know I don't know I don't know I I I mean I know that right now it's to provide a free and appropriate education. I mean, that's fame yeah. um, for our children, but I don't know if, 
if I can say that I do, if you, t- if you were to tell me, I, this is the story of my life. It's like not knowing yes. the author of a book, but then you say the name and I say, yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> so his daughter is currently an education consultant for mostly gifted education, but it's my birthplace, ironically, Chapel Hill, North mm-hmm. Carolina. There's a wonderful man. He's since passed, but his name is Dr. James J. Gallagher. And he Mm -hmm. was an expert in special education and gifted education. And Mm -hmm. he literally created the framework back in from 1967 to 1970s um, Mm -hmm. when he worked with, he was that commissioner and he was the first Mm -hmm. chief of Bureau of Education for handicapped students in the U.S. Um, Mm -hmm. But he even approved the initial federal funding for Sesame Street and and was the initial development of closed captioning. So it's like, ding 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 but he mm-hmm. made this for two e-kids exactly two e-kids because they were so bored in general education and if they got plucked mm-hmm. out and only pulled out into special education they were not getting served there either and even if they got mm-hmm. gifted education that mm-hmm. might have been too hard and they were being told oh you're too smart for accommodations so that was my problem mm-hmm. when I found out this information is I'm like wait If I'm the target demographic and I never got an IEP, what's up with the system? (laughs) Well, okay. So that was actually, that is part of what I've learned and part of what really drew me towards becoming certified as an IEP specialist, because I could not. We need you. People need you for real. Well, this is how I feel. And I don't, I don't know that all advocates kids have the same opinion that is okay but my goal sitting at that table as a member of the IEP team is not to beat down teachers and make sure the school is providing everything that they said they would because I do hope that but really my goal is to help the parents I mean is to help educate the school they're educators but even educators are only educated in their areas their specific areas and I'm looking at the child that I'm representing and I'm saying here is this child's specific needs this is what this means for them specifically who they Mm -hmm. are this is why these accommodations are meaningful to them and then my goal and I and I I work really hard not to do this in a demeaning way because that's it's hard and that, no that is hard <laughs> but I am my goal is to provide tools for the teachers that they can use also yes. and I'm looking at hey IEP team here is a behavior intervention plan that is generic this is how we make it more specific for this child and this is how we make it positive and meaningful. Because I think some behavior intervention plans are just honestly punishment-based and I that makes yes. my blood boil. Yes. And so I I am coming in and I and what I'm doing is I'm saying, I see you have a behavior intervention plan. Here are some things I really like about your plan. Let's talk about punishment versus uh, positive versus what it can look like in a positive form. What we know now is that punishment really, all it does is stop a behavior in that moment, but you are in no way teaching 
or guiding or directing or redirecting a child in what you want to see or what is effective for them. We're just telling them, stop doing that, but we're not telling them what to do instead. And we're not teaching those skills. Those are really needed skills. And I think that we're missing the boat there. So can I tell you what what your most powerful tool is? Social cognitive learning theory is social media. Because look at companies. If you want somebody Mm -hmm. to buy your product, are you going to say, don't buy that fast food restaurant? Or do you have a actor or somebody they looked up towards like a celebrity eating your sandwich? Mm -hmm. What is going to influence your customer more? Telling them, Mm -hmm. oh, don't do that. They're going to want to do what you're telling them not to do. (laughs) Well, I really like that example because they will repeat that behavior because they don't know another way. You haven't taught them another way. Yes. And I really like that example. And I think for me, I learned the hard way and I feel I have taken the time to look back at who I was then and given myself compassion as a parent because, but we do better when we know better. Yeah. I love that. Know better, do better. Love it. Yes. I was working with what I knew at the time, which was, I literally thought I could take in her autism diagnosis and the school would know what accommodations she needed. But I'd argue it it pains me when I learned that fact um, through our IEP process, because the school is telling us Number one, we couldn't say dyslexia. They wanted to say SLD, but they were like, oh, this is a medical issue. I went to Mm -hmm. our pediatrician. The pediatrician said, no, I can't diagnose your child. That's a school issue. Mm -hmm. So I went back to the school and they were like, well, you know, you can go to this brain training thing and they might be able to diagnose you or they might Mm -hmm. fix it. And I'm just Mm -hmm. like, no lady, that's not what I want. (laughs) Yeah. School, a lot of schools do not test specifically for dyslexia. We um, went to a place here called the neurodevelopmental center. But here's the thing that is frustrating about that. Number one, it's out of pocket funding. Not everyone can afford that. And that is just doesn't sit well with me. Well, I went through, I requested the IEE and we couldn't find anybody locally that would do an evaluation or an assessment for dyslexia. They would do it for ADHD. They would do it for autism. They would do it for anything else. Mm -hmm. And then when I did find, uh, Atlanta speech school that they said, and it's Mm -hmm. cheaper when the child is younger to evaluate the school Mm -hmm. said, Oh, that's too far. I volunteered to drive my daughter and the school said, Nope, we're not going to do that. So at that we already knew they made up their mind at that point. Mm -hmm. So parents that are listening, what she's referring to is you can actually ask to have your child tested independently, but the school and the parent have to agree on that independent test. And they can still reject what you find. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And so there is some frustration there. What I, my goal is to sit at that table and, and be very specific about This is what this child needs. Here's what it can look like. Here are some resources team for the team that I want you to look at. And let's decide together what we can implement here. And And I think, I think you're right because we even did the facilitated IEP and that still did not help us. And that's when you have from our state, they allow it where it's like an outside person and it's a lawyer, but this lawyer still did not stop them from saying things that aren't supposed to be supported by idea or IEP. So at this point I'm thinking like, what is it going to take? Does like the federal government 
or does just ADA need to, you know, hire people like you that are willing to learn about the IEP and go into these meetings because mm -hmm. these are human right violations at this point because kids yeah. are not being included. They're not. One of the things that is actually pretty simple, but is, and this isn't me touting what I know, but yeah. I'm telling you, this has been very useful in what I do. What I did before because I'm actually not certified yet. I'm close, but I'm not quite done. About the end you might of as September, well be with four children. I'll just say. <laughs> <laughs> By the end of September, I'll be officially certified. Uh, so if you're looking for someone that's certified, that don't call me until the end of September 2020. <laughs> <laughs> but but one thing that I I what I did first is I took what I knew and learned through my master's program about behavior and about executive functioning skills mm. and what those can look like in real time. And then I also took what I know about my children and how their executive functioning skills, how they presented themselves in their lives. And I was able to go to the schools. Now I take that information and I work with parents on executive functioning and how they can help accommodate their child with those executive functioning skills and they'd say with their executive dysfunction but i just say it's and, and that it's not that that's wrong but i'd say with where they maybe struggle with executive functioning no thank and you because it, a lot of people don't know that the minimum age that you master uh, executive functions and that's usually considering a neurotypical child is 12 mm -hmm. and that doesn't count for giftedness right. when you have asynchrony because you can mm -hmm. master one function but you might be working on another so that's right so important. that is right so i'm saying to the teachers at the table it's not just teachers it's that usually there's a principal there's the special ed leader or special ed director of the school and there's you know whoever else works with your child is sitting at that IEP table and I am saying things like we have an issue with we, this child is struggling with their working memory hmm. and so this is what that means and this is how we can accommodate that this specific accommodation we can put that in there and sometimes it looks like just repetition you know for this child it, it can be as you know what's funny though that. in some of those meetings I almost want to like give my own quiz to some of these administrators mm -hmm. because sometimes talking about my daughter like we had to put up a picture of her because they would start to disconnect so much and yes. they would just talk about almost like a checklist of what she needed to do in order to be able to learn. Mm -hmm. And it was something as simple as reading. They said, mm -hmm. oh, she might not be mature enough. Mm -hmm. And I was like, listen, that's archaic, y'all. Calm down. Also, and also, <laughs> it doesn't really have anything to do with maturity. It's no. all about, it's all of that for me is is, I mean, there's a developmental piece to it. There's an IQ piece to it. And even though IQ, I don't always love all the things that are associated with IQ, but there is. No, I made a recent post. I can help you with that because mm -hmm. I don't know why something about the 1940s, that's when everybody loved Terman for IQ, but no, IQ is exclusionary. It wasn't mm -hmm. meant even for the gifted kids it found. It wasn't meant for us. It was always to exclude the lower quotient 
-hmm. but it doesn't actually measure what intelligence is. Intelligence is the ability to learn. Yes. And you can't always measure that. That's right. That's kind of, you just really nailed what my issue is with it. I think that every kid can learn. It's for me, I look at it's a human right to be able to have access. Yes. Yes. And I say how I, how I pull that apart is I say, we learn, and this is common. I'm not, I'm not reinventing anything here, but every kid learns at their own pace and maybe there, I can actually tell you there's research that says against that now, because people used to say that all the time, right. To be like, oh, well, you know, they'll just catch up. Cause that's a lot of Mm -hmm. wait to fail that you'll see in Mm -hmm. dyslexia. Of, oh, just wait until third grade, right? Mm -hmm. Researchers found, no, we do learn at similar Mm -hmm. rates. It's just that we- It's learning style. Well, there's a lot of people that don't agree with learning style either. For me, my argument, yes. Um, Mm -hmm. There's research that says that learning styles have been debunked, but my argument is, I think it's a rudimentary understanding of neurodiversity because we can't assume that every brain is the same when we have- imaging neuroscience that says every Mm -hmm. single brain is different right and that's why i love Mm -hmm. explicit teaching structured literacy science Mm -hmm. of math because Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how your brain's wired these Mm -hmm. math reading and writing skills you're learning are not born in anyone they have to be explicitly taught because our brain pulls from different areas to Mm -hmm. learn them And it's like, you know, you could say like, oh, everybody learns differently. And I'm like, I get it. A lot of people, you're trying to be nice, but no, Mm -hmm. you don't have to scaffold a student to death. You don't have to (laughs) prepare like 20,000 like lesson plans. I so understand what you're saying. I think like the multi-sensory environment has proven to be really effective. And, and I love that. I think what I, the reason why I talk about learning style and as like a method is only because in the schools that we are in, there is one way that they teach reading. Yes. And that is not how my daughter is learning how to read. I well, and, to the, and let's too. talk about that because it's mm-hmm. not always what's best for the learner. It's mm-hmm. these, which I'm sure your, your kids would say too. Like it, and mm-hmm. that's another thing. It's a disadvantage for neurodivergent parents, because if mm-hmm. you don't know the money involved and you don't know the politics behind it, you might not know why your school has a certain curriculum. Right. Right. And I think, and I think, so for our daughter, what we did is we went to this place I've mentioned it before, the neurodevelopmental center, and they tested how she learns and they created a a program that has a variety of learning opportunities for her. Some are visual and some are verbal and some are written and some. Yeah, they're strengths. Well, let me tell you about that. So I got our evaluation, right? And they told us we can't Mm -hmm. diagnose. But my daughter is visually and spatial strengths off the charts. And we Mm -hmm. took that back to the school and they were just like, we don't know what we can do with this. And that is what I'm talking about. When I talk about learning styles, I actually mean (laughs) that we don't learn in just one way. And, And that's actually what I mean. So I'm glad that you actually talked about learning styles because I'm And I'm not trying to be mean. It's just, I've seen this disconnect because people will immediately, if you say learning style in any Facebook group, all these Mm -hmm. teachers will attack you and be like, well, that's been debunked. We tried that. 
But the yeah. problem is the, our brains were never debunked. The, what was debunked was the fact that no, you cannot be one teacher in a class and teach mm -hmm. visual to one student, kinesthetic to one student, and mm -hmm. audio to another student. Mm -hmm. What was shown was that all students benefit in whole group, in inclusion, when you hit all of those areas, That's because right. you cannot, you're not a neuroscientist. You don't know yeah. how one brain learns versus the other. Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, it definitely takes more preparation. Yes. For teachers to teach like that. There's definitely more preparation. And I think that that is one of the hangups. Well, that is people forget that, environment is one of the teachers. That's why huge. teachers love anchor charts. huge. Yeah, I, I am a huge proponent of environment. I'm, I'm saying, let's go into the classroom. Let's see how this is set up. And so that's the other thing. That's the place that I haven't gotten to yet. But I really do hope in the future. Well, can I tell you I our story? It was, it yes. put me back. So mm -hmm. my daughter, she would say it was too bright in her classroom. Mm -hmm. And the teacher would respond, well, everybody can look around and see my room is like the darkest room. We only have like this one lamp on. And I was like, do you have any natural light? And she was like, no. And I was like, that's why. No, it's the fluorescent it's lights. The fluorescent lights. And fluorescent lights also have a hum to them yes. too, which is distracting for autistic kids. But we I had to remind her, experience. your perception mm -hmm. is not in the IEP lady. It's my daughter's. <laughs> well, isn't that funny? It's telling someone that their experience isn't really what the experience is. Because validation. It's, different than your, yeah. yes, it's different than your experience. So I think that for me, my goal is first to sit down and listen to the parents. And I want to hear what their child's needs are, where they're struggling. I want to see like test results that if they've done any testing outside of the school. And I can want I ask to you to do something? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ask them to bring anything from home because that is the only thing that helped me because the school would show up with artwork and compare it to oh. a fellow classmate and be mm -hmm. like, this is wrong. Mm -hmm. And when I brought it up to the psychologist, the psychologist was like, oh, I would have given her extra points for that. And mm -hmm. we were doing Nessie learning worksheets at home. We were doing mm -hmm. Khan Academy kids at home. I could bring data mm -hmm. and great, I'm not a teacher, right? But it helped mm -hmm. me refute their evidence when they were trying to refuse accommodations or- yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I've started that that is something I've only, I've only really been in like four or five official IEP meetings because my kids never bless call. you. Cause like, Oh, my heart still races thinking about it. <laughs> well, they are pretty heavy and I don't know what it says about me, but heavy environments. I'm okay in those. I don't, I don't, it's not like I'm feeling joy. It's an ability of ADHD people. Yes, you are is, in a chaotic environment. Mm -hmm. You do not like scatter. You, I wouldn't even, not everybody thrives, but that yeah. is your environment. I function, I function just fine within that environment. And, and even for my own kids, when I would show up, there would, I can't, I can't pretend that I didn't feel extra emotion for my yeah. own children. I would get sweaty. I would, my heart would race and like, mm -hmm. they would start mm -hmm. like just going down the list. Like at one FIEP IEP meeting, they mm -hmm. went around the room and asked like, what do you know about the student or what is like the student good at? And only mm -hmm. me and my husband spoke up. It's 
that makes me sad because all of the meetings that I've been at, regardless of if the school is fully, uh, what do I say, following the 504 or the IEP, mm -hmm. they have all done a decent job in identifying strengths. Oh, good. But I can tell you that I know that not all schools do, but there yeah. is pain in that for parents because you feel like then you don't know my child. Yes. And how can you educate someone that you don't know? And that's a, that is actually a really, that's a heartbreaking space to be at for a parent. I had um, a whole family I grew up with that were my neighbors and the mom says she did it on purpose. Cause in the South, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people go by their middle name. Mm. She did it on purpose because if her son's got in trouble and they're probably ADHD too, but if she got a phone call from the school or from a teacher for a parent conference and they used their first legal name and not their middle name, she knew they didn't know her child. Oh, there is definitely something to that. And the connection, I, I always say connection before correction. There's power. Oh, in I the love connection. that. I, I do think that built in a first and foremost is the environment. I don't think you can connect with a child if they're not in a comfortable environment. Or if they're I regulated. Yeah, regulation right. should be the goal. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's regulation first and then and then connection before correction. So that's kind of how I see it now. But I, I walk into a school and I do like your idea. We have brought work from home. Actually, I saw your post with uh, the, the artwork yeah. that you shared. And, and I thought, what a brilliant idea to Thank bring you. in, to bring in artwork so that they know this is how this child creates in a comfortable You're, environment that's right <laughs> that's right this is how they that's yes bingo this is how they create this is what you can expect to see the purpose behind doing that is just to teach the people that are part of this team this is who my child is when you and don't see them what i that's see right. versus what you see mm -hmm. the fact that we're not seeing you're not seeing who my child is. That's why I'm sitting here with concern. Yes. Because this is who my child is. And, and I think we can bring that out. And here's how I propose we do that. And so I think that that's always my goal is to say, hey, this is who this child is. I also love your idea of bringing a picture because it does often turn into this is a document that we're working on and data, 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 know. data. Yes. Data, data, data. But I'm like, but the data is actually part of a human. It's a human. Child is. Yes. Yes. And so I think there's that part of it. I don't, when the heat turns up, whether it be on, whether it be on the part of the parents or a mem another member of the IEP team, I think that you can always ask for a break too. Oh, I, right. That was That's powerful. Right. We can ask for a break. Cause I say when emotions go up, we start functioning from, I think it's like your limbic system that it feels all those emotions. We start functioning from a limbic space and we're not as rational. Yes. And, and level-headed. And so it's very our, more impulsive because yeah, I felt mm -hmm. that because a lot of people felt attacked and yeah. defenses go up that's what I was trying yeah, to say yeah they don't want to listen mm -hmm. and I and I think that that is unproductive however it doesn't mean that you're not going to feel those emotions and I think that's what an advocate is there for which is an IEP specialist it's the same thing essentially and 
I think that's kind of why you might want to bring one in is because they can take the parts that are so emotional for you naturally and they can present them in a less emotional way to the rest of the IEP team. And that helps keep the environment more settled, a little bit calmer, more regulated as a whole, as a group. Because even though it's a group of adults, it is still an environment, which is always very important to me, is what that environment looks like. It's just as important for the child, if not more, because they haven't learned some of those skills that we've learned in order to behave as we do as adults, which quite honestly, sometimes (laughs) inappropriate too. Well, I comment all the time. Like if I see somebody post like, you know, school readiness, I'm like, I know adults that don't have this. (laughs) Yes. No, it is so true. And maybe they never learned it. I think when they don't have it, it's because they never learned it. Yes. Somebody said- Or it wasn't required. (laughs) Yes, it wasn't required. That's right. So I think- what I would say about well, tell me, do you have hope? Because I, I honestly want to. I really want to. I have mixed emotions. What I have hope for is that there are some basic accommodations that we can educate and teach and help schools implement. I have hope in that. I because we know I, they have the funds. <laughs> I, yeah, they do have the funds, and quite honestly, even when there isn't a lot of funding, some of these accommodations are so basic and simple. They just may not be aware that that could actually be such a meaningful accommodation for a child or multiple children. Well, and I try to remind people, like, how can you deny a kid any kind of aid when we walk around today? And if you look at our computers, we have Mm -hmm. a keyboard that's access Mm -hmm. to the alphabet, numbers, symbols, Mm -hmm. Like you can go home and have accommodations that you didn't ask for. You didn't have a diagnosis for, but you benefit from. Yes. But you can sit in a meeting and deny that for a child. (laughs) I know it's very, very frustrating. The other piece to do I have hope would be (laughs) there are things that I recognize that our public school system will never provide for our children. True. And and I but we can't stop trying. <laughs> we we can't stop trying, but the other thing that I would like to say besides this the the try I think the trying comes in the form of educating mm-hmm. and it and educating the education system. And and that can take a lot of study. It can take a lot of minds coming together and brainstorming together and then helping educate those that are educators. Because sometimes we get stuck in, this is the way it's always been done. This is the way that we do it. This is, but we know as neurodivergent thinkers that there isn't just one solution to any given problem. But also if the public schools don't figure it out, the private companies will. (laughs) Well, this is, this is actually, that's part of what I was about to say is sometimes there was never a time. I'm a teacher. My degree is in education. And yet I look at my daughter and I see that the school does not teach in a way that is 
that like she needs extra additional help for math. I think that is wonderful that they're providing that extra additional help for math. But even with that, it's not always a multi-sensory experience. And that is the way that she learns. Mm. And I am not going to go in there and have the ability to force a teacher to change all of her teaching plans. I hope yeah. that a teacher will say, you know what, I can actually shift and it benefits all the kids in my classroom. I hope that, but hope isn't a reality. (laughs) True. Which I really have to thank, um, decoding dyslexia for a lot of their legislation personally mm -hmm. in my state. And Mm -hmm. I hope other advocacy grassroots groups take that torch Mm -hmm. and kind of carry it on Mm -hmm. because it does take sometimes just one parent to be that one to say, Hey, we can change. Mm -hmm. And I also on a whole other, but funding, there, there may be funding, but I also think that it's a whole other topic. But accountability. I, I think that, <laughs> yes, there's accountability. And there's also, because we have such diversity in the needs of so many of our children. We don't I need another that, sports stadium. We don't. <laughs> yeah, but I look at like AAC devices used for, yes. for communication for kids that are nonverbal. And I think those are expensive. But some are free and you can put it on a Chromebook. You can put it on on a computer. Yes. Yes. It's true. And so I think that that requires education. I think schools sometimes push back because they're saying that's, that is a huge cost. And I think it's, it, I, sorry to say it falls on parents or their advocate to do the research and say, but here's another option. Mm. And it is much more cost-effective or like you said, some are free. And what if we start there? And that is an accommodation for my child. There are some children whose behaviors are connected to, how do I even say this? I work with a lot of families who are raising autistic children and with autism self being regulated and the environment, that's why environment is so important to me it plays a huge role in a child's ability to even be able to be present in that environment. Yes. And it's difficult. It is very difficult. And I look at schools and I think we right off the bat, a large class size is already going to be something that doesn't work for many autistic children. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of, it just, it's a little bit of chaos and Can I give you some hope? Yes. The school my husband works at, they've advocated for sensory rooms on every hall, even up to the high school level. Mm -hmm. And and I love that. I love that so much. I think that we have a ways to go within our current public education system. There's always room for growth. There are schools that are doing it well, and there are schools that have a long way to go. And I, I feel there's sadness in that for me, that it's not universal across the board, but we know there's inequity everywhere we go. And it doesn't mean that it's right. It means that it exists and that we can acknowledge that it is, and that we can find ways to, to help close some of those gaps. And I just look at some, which is having somebody like you at an IEP meeting. (laughs) Well, I hope so. I hope so. I do look at some parents who have gone through the IEP process and just felt 
chewed up and annihilated on the other side because even with all of those supports their child was still not doing well yeah. and so they have either homeschooled their child or they've taken them to private schools with that's me two and three <laughs> and yeah two and three and four kids in each classroom and specialists that are highly trained and I I don't know how I feel about that yet that I'm, I'm grateful that those places exist but they don't exist for everyone because not every family can afford to go to those places. Yeah, I, you're right. I feel sad about that. And I think that maybe there's a way that the public schools, I'm hoping that I can even just start small and start teaching. This is what it can look like. You are so right. I want to repeat those words that maybe it just takes one person to show the public school what it can actually look like. And Michelle, I just want to thank you so much again for joining us on this episode of talking about everything that comes along with being a parent of a neurodivergent child, being a neurodivergent parent yourself, and how to incorporate more neuroaffirming practices within the context of neurodiversity. But please, listeners, remember embracing affirming practices it's not just about parenting children or advocating for our children it's about helping ourselves and our children blossom into their own authentic selves every child is unique and some of the strategies you've heard here today might work best for your child or they may not it differs from one child to another so please be able to adapt and evolve your approach as you learn more about your child's needs and strengths or even their own challenges and that might include you too because being a neuroaffirming parent is an ongoing journey of learning empathy and growth so if you enjoyed today's episode please do not forget to like share subscribe leave us a review if you'd like uh if you really loved what you've heard here today, please follow Michelle at navigating.the.spectrum on Instagram or check out her own podcast called Navigating the Spectrum with Michelle. And also she has a website that you can go to. You can find that on her Instagram bio. And until next time, please keep nurturing those neuroaffirming connections. Thank you once again for listening. This is the Neuroaffirming Parent signing off.